morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, we are right the Sunday before kind of a new series that we're going to jump into. I'm glad to see you. We've got kind of a, a rhythm worked out for Sunday morning now. We kind of see how we're going to be for the next foreseeable future or, or, or whatever, right? That's kind of the way we're addressing it, but we've got we to gotta go at it hard. Uh, but now what we realize, we need to turn our attention um, as a leadership team toward our missional community groups. And um, for those who, if you don't know what that is, that's groups that are smaller, that we meet in homes, and that's a little bit different. So we're kind of having to regroup and, and, and tailor Sunday to be a little bit more like maybe a, a big missional community. We've got some groups that are meeting physically, like ours will meet at Swan Creek sometimes, and then we meet Zoom, and then we're meeting smaller groups. So we're, we're kind of all over the board. So we're kind of trying to revisit this and see how can we, in this pandemic, start now to be disciples rather than wait. So our, our series is uh, going to be called Disciple Now. Now, if you have any Baptist backgrounds, you're like, wait, I know what that is. And, but that's not exactly it. It's actually Disciple Now. Like, not later, not when the pandemic is over, not when you get around to it, but now. And so there's a, hopefully a sense of urgency that will be attached to that. And so we're going to go through aspects of what it's like to be a disciple. It may look different now than it used to, but we're not going to just kind of stop. We, we want to go through a week of, uh, weeks of, let's see, we got looking into the, into the Word of God. We've got meditating on that. We've got prayer, silence and solitude, feasting and fasting, generosity, hospitality, what does Sabbath look like, service, and, and then in the context that we are in. And so we are going to spend a good bit of time on that. And then we're going to try to take questions from that. And then if your missional community decides to go through this, that's fine. You may be going through a book. But if you're not in a missional community, we're going to have questions that kind of follow that with, so what does that look like to do that in, in regards to maybe Sabbath or serving? Are we doing that? Why aren't we doing that? How do we do that better? You know, and so asking questions where we're engaging with one another uh, a little bit better. And so we're going to provide a little bit more structure and look at how we're doing ministry. And just like the church has done for millennia, we're going to take the times we're in and we're going to adapt, right? And so we have to constantly be reinventing ourselves because we just can't do things the same way anymore. But we do know this. We don't need to just pull back all the way period, and sit still in all areas of our life. That's not what God is doing. He's doing something. And it's my hope that we will come out of this as a church stronger as a people. Maybe God is purifying his church. Maybe God is teaching us not to depend on our programs so heavily and, and more on him. Maybe he's teaching us how to bring, uh, how to long for him, right? How, how to be taught by him, how to lead ourselves, how to lead our, our marriages, how to lead our families. You may not know how to feed yourself through Bible study, and we want to resource you for that. We want to point you in the right direction, even if you're not in a missional community. If you would like to be in a missional community, you're not. Reach out to me, text me, email me, or Dave, or somebody on staff. Just let us know. If you're not ready, that, that's fine. We understand. We just want to provide opportunities to go deeper with Jesus. So that leads us to our, our topic for today, which uh, we discussed being established in the faith last week. Brooke kind of said it. From 1 Peter, as we were finishing up 1 Peter 5, and having a foundation, right, the, the roots that go deep 
a foundation that when a storm comes, it's not built on sand, just gets kind of blown over because your faith was not really attached in and, and, and going deep. It was just a superficial kind of a puny faith. We want to go deep. We want to know what God's Word has for us. I want understanding what it is to have courage and being steadfast, convinced that Jesus is the deepest need that we have, the ultimate reality, and that He is worth following to the death. And so today, we're going to move on from talking about what it means to be established, that we can be established, and we want to see a picture of what it looks like to be established in the Bible. And so that leads us to Isaiah 37. The whole story is, is 36 and 37. I'm going to read an excerpt if you want to get your Bible ready to read with me. And we're talking about King Hezekiah. Now, a lot of times, you know, you say you would think you, if it's Old Testament, you know, turn to Hezekiah. But that's really not a book in, in the Bible. That's just a, a king, and it's in Isaiah. And in 2 Kings uh, 18 and 19, and it, thank you for that, and, and uh, in first, no, 2 Chronicles 32. So it shows up, the story is in there like three times, and it's told in, in three different ways. Um, but we're going to hit this excerpt right here. All right, this is King Hezekiah. He's a king of Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been wiped out, and so it's their turn. It's around 701 uh, B- B.C., they think. So here's where we go. Hezekiah, verse 14. King Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and it read, and he, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and, and he spread the letter out. He spread it out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, who, which he has sent to mock the living God. And that's the king of Assyria. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for there were no god, they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken uh, concerning him. She, being the daughter of Israel, she being Israel, she despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. So, what's in that letter? (laughs) That sounds like a a big deal, right? And so, where the story kind of starts for us today is a letter from king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Uh, It it looks like Sennacherib, you know, just kind of pull one out uh, when you just kind of read that. That helped me remember his name. You know, I was like, okay, it's that guy, the, the king of Assyria. Um, and what he has been conquering all the lands around Judah. He's shown up now. He's got an army of about 200,000 soldiers. He's just wait, laid waste to about 46 fenced city or fortified cities on his way in. So he's wreaking havoc on the entire land. And little Judah is just next. Okay? And so Hezekiah, he, he didn't want to have any part of that. He wanted to fight. He had tried to join with the king of uh, Egypt. And it just didn't go well. Egypt got put down again. And, and if you read uh, Isaiah 36, you can read that story. 
Let's pick back up in, in Chronic, 2 Chronicles 32 where we get another side of this story. Verse 2 from 2 Chronicles 32 says this, When King Hezekiah, when he saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, so you're in Jerusalem and he's lined up out of Jerusalem, he's looking out. And he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. So his men are helping him, and the water that is there, he's trying to divert water outside the city, inside the city, and they build these deep tunnels. You can read in other parts in 2 Kings, the, the tunnels of Siloam, because he's expecting a siege. And what a siege is, is when the, the army surrounds you, and they won't let you in or out, and they cut off your water supply, and they just want to starve you to death where it gets really bad inside. And if you read say, uh, Isaiah 36, you'll see some of the quotes that are in there. And it's basically torture. And so this is what they're preparing for. And so they're trying to lessen the effects of the siege. Verse 4, And a great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs up. This is Hezekiah preparing. And the brook that flowed that through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So why should it help them out? Let us get it to help us. He set work, and here's what else he did. He was preparing. He built up the wall that was broken down. He raised up towers on it so they could see and have scout towers. He, he, he uh, outside and he built another wall. He's trying to fortify the city. He, spring, he strengthened the millow, which is the ramparts uh, in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. He's building up the city for war. He's preparing. He's doing what a good king or general should have done in time of war. Keep reading uh, verse 6, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together uh, to him in the square and the gate of the city. And he spoke to them. He encouraged them, saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is a flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he's building up the city for war, he's, he's getting the walls built, he's fortifying it, and he's building up the people and preparing them and encouraging them and reminding them that it's not just about what you see, but you know what the Lord has done in the past. This is not new territory for God's people. He was doing everything a good king and a good leader should do. He prayed, he acted, he pointed them to God, but it wasn't enough. Even though King Hezekiah later, he, he offers to pay tribute to Sennacherib. He's like, here, if you will take 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold and just go away, and he's ripping gold and, and silver out of the temple because that's all they've got left just to give it to save his people. And he looks out and he sees 200,000 soldiers and he sent his general up to, to trash talk not only the king but all of Judea, saying, this king doesn't know what he's talking about. This, your God's not, he's going to be like every other God. We've flattened every city. Who are you going to put your trust in? Egypt, and he's just trash-talking it. And that's where King Hezekiah finds himself in this moment that we're reading about. He's about to suffer certain ruin surrounded by his enemies. What does he do? What does it, let me ask a question in the language of 1 Peter. What does it look like to be established in the face of certain ruin? Crushing difficulty. The enemy is displaying power, sowing fear, doubting God, exposing our weakness. Their, say, their siege is our pandemic. What is it bringing out in us as people? What is it revealing? What is it exposing? How should we treat one another? How are we treating one another? How is the church responding? How should the church respond? And so let's look at what Hezekiah's responses were. 
Let's see what a gospel response is. Four responses to suffering, if you like taking notes. Here we go. We've got four of them, right? Number one, turn immediately to God. Number two, search out wise, godly counsel. Number three, be honest before God. And then finally, wait. It's the hardest one. Wait on God. I think they're in order of difficulty. That's just the way that worked out. Okay. <laughs> Number one, turn immediately to God. That's his, Hezekiah's initial response. It's his reflex. Verses 14 through 16. He got the letter and he turned to God. He went up to the house of the Lord. Now, when you find yourself in trouble today or you have a need, you can just YouTube it. I found out that I can learn to do a lot, even though I know very little about watching people on YouTube. Uh, our old van, uh, we've had a new warning light every week, and I learned how to change the spark plugs, and it's not in there the way you think it would be, the way that you can get to it, but you have to buy like this antenna with a magnet on the end of it, but you wouldn't know that unless you would YouTube that, and you can find out how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I found out how to defrost and take apart my refrigerator. Somebody told me that. You watch this video, and you can take your whole refrigerator apart and just let it defrost with a, a hair dryer. I learned a lot of stuff, and I don't know anything about any of that stuff, and I fixed something. I felt like I did something kind of manly. It was a good feeling, right? And, and we can do that to a degree. It's amazing what you can learn how to do on YouTube. Outside of that realm, uh, I have zero expertise, but, but in this little bitty area right here, I can tell you how to do that, or I can shoot you a link. Do we turn to the world's solutions first? Like, like self-help books, blogs. Well, we research so much stuff on the Internet because we can. It's there. I can just ask Siri, right? I can just ask or, or, or whoever you talk to, <laughs> whoever you're, you're asking questions, right? We, we can research so much to justify our opinions, and they're, they're helpful sometimes. They're just not heart-changing. And if we spend as much time, I think, in God's Word as we do proving ourselves online, our culture would look different. Is, is it our reflex to turn to Jesus? Or is that a last resort? Do we, do we really trust the Lord? Or do we just trust the Lord when that's all that's left? I'm guilty of that sometimes. Oh, this guy's doing this. I've been there. For this to be a reflex, like for King Hezekiah, it's already got to be your lifestyle. I remember my mom. One, my mom told me one, one time, I was probably about 10, I was being irresponsible, surprised, but I don't know what I was doing, but she, I will never remember, I don't remember what it was about, but I remember exactly what she said, I remember where I was standing, because I was 10, and she said, you need to start being responsible, because you're going to be a husband one day, and I remember thinking, it's a little overkill, isn't it? I mean, seriously, like when the time, I, and I remember I said, as a, kind of a, a smart 10-year-old, uh, don't get any ideas, I, I, I said, when the time comes, I'll be responsible. Like, when I'm, when I'm a husband and I'm supposed to be responsible, well, then I'll be responsible. In my mind, that made perfect sense. Here's what she's saying, though. She, she, she knows that's not true. <laughs> she knows that you don't just suddenly become something you're not. She knows that, that it's not something you turn on and off. It is an extension of who you are, right? Like Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And similarly, our reflexes in difficult circumstances reveal what we really trust, where we really turn. So we must be abiding in Jesus before a crisis if that is to be our reflex in a crisis. 
right? We must be abiding in Jesus before the crisis if that is to be our reflex in a crisis. Otherwise, we're going to be trusting our false wells. That's going to be our default. That's going to be our reflex. We're going to run to them before we run to Jesus. What's a false well? What do you, what do you mean with that, James? A false well in the Bible is somewhere we turn other than Jesus to be okay, to, to get what we need, to get our support. False wells, wells of, of finances and, and, and wealth, savings account, 401K, stock options, whatever it is. Money in the bank, in your mattress, turning to relationships, reputation, job, family, how well our kids are doing, how well we can present how well our kids are doing, our grades, sports, beauty, whatever it is for you to go, if I had this, then I would be okay. And if I had just a little of this and a little of that, then I'd be, that is a false well. The Bible calls it a false well. It means you think you can get water from there and you can drink all day long, but you end up thirsty and empty. And somehow it keeps repeating itself. And you can go decades and think, well, if I just had this well, if I just had this, if I had this job, if I just had, if I could just marry this woman, not that woman, if I could have this family, not that family, if I could have this job, not that job, and you just play volleyball with your direction in life. Let's stay plugged into our fuel support, our fuel source, and let's abide and dwell in Jesus daily. That's why we say, hey, we, you need food every day. Somehow we've landed on three meals a day. Either way, you need to have in, you know, nourish, nourishment. Energy needs to come in. If you don't, you will die. Physical mirrors the spiritual. And many of us are malnourished spiritually. We think we're fine. But we have such a low standard that we don't know that we're starving to death. And we wonder why a storm comes along and we're undone and our lives just come apart. We need to be established. We need to see what that looks like. We need to be grounded in the Word. We need to be spending time in prayer, thriving in community, being vulnerable with one another, forgiving one another, and being forgiven. This is Christianity. Number two, we see King Hezekiah. He searched for wise help, wise counsel. He goes... To the, to the house of the Lord, he turns to the Lord first. In verse 2, he turns to Isaiah of chapter 37 for godly counsel. He asks for him to pray for him and for any counsel that he has. And so during times like this, we need to turn to the Word of God. And devotions are great. I read a devotional every morning. That's great. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's not. But a devotion is somebody else's interpretation of the Bible. You need to go straight to the well. You can do a devotion as well, but don't just do devotions. That's other people's opinions of what the Bible says, all right? Do, do both. We need to dive deep into Scripture to turn to bro, bro, godly brothers and sisters and godly fathers and mothers in the Spirit to, to ask them to be humble and to re, be receptive to God's input. We have to be willing to listen, to allow somebody that we know loves Jesus, that loves Jesus more than they love us, that loves us more than they love what we think of them, and that they would allow us to speak in their lives and vice versa because they're going to have a different, different perspective. They will see things in our lives that we do not see, either because we don't want to see them or we're actually just blind to them. That's a real friend. That's a real mentor. And humility is a precondition to really listening Other, because you can't hear. Pride does not hear. You can say the exact thing, and you can hear the words are said, exactly what you need to, to hear that exposes that, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you do not hear it. 
because it's got to be found in the soil of humility. We don't have influences in, in our lives like this. Let's pray that God would bring them. Let's pray that we would desire them. Let's pray that we would be them. To listen to one another and to know that we desire God's best for each other. Number three, being honest with God. Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 37, verse 1. If you just back up 13 verses, it says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. This is when he heard about Sennacherib and being surrounded. And he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. This is a king. And he goes up in verse 14 in the house of the Lord again, and he, and he lays this threatening letter from the king of Syria saying, we're coming after you. Nothing's getting in our way. You're going down. You're going to burn. And he lays it before the Lord. And he basically prays this. He says, here it is, Lord. You see this letter? You are the true God. You're the maker of heaven and earth, and I believe that. You are. Please listen. Listen to us. Look at this letter. This is bad. This is as bad as it gets. And, and they have done everything that they have said. These threats are not empty. And, and we are next. And we are doomed unless you do something amazing. Nothing makes sense right now and left to our own devices. We are already dead. Save us. So that. And he doesn't say save us so that we can be saved. Save us so that we'll be happy. Save us so that we can be, you know, excited about that and we can see our families. He says, save us so that everyone will know that you alone are God. It's an interesting perspective. And he tears his clothes, right? And the tearing of his clothes is a sign of lamenting, grieving, mourning, a reckoning of the situation, an honest assessment put before the Lord. He's not informing the Lord, well, Lord, here's what's going on. Did you, you, I don't know if you've seen uh, 200,000 soldiers out there, um, but I want to let you know that's there. And then God would be like, oh, I had no idea. Um, what are you going to do about that? that? That's not what's going on here. It's an appeal to God and, 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 a, and an owning of our weakness, of fear, of hurt, of anger. It is not despair. It is not hiding, it is not pretending, it is not deflecting, it is not excusing, it is not blaming, it is not beating ourselves up. It's simply lamenting, it's being honest about where we are. And I want us to learn uh, there's a poverty of this in the Western church. We either want to get it fixed or we want to pray out of it. And we don't ever just be in it and give it to God. But that's biblical. That's, in fact, most of the Psalms are laments. We've got a whole book called Lamentations, <laughs> right? Bad stuff happens. How do we deal with it? We lament. This is, I, did this the, I, I did a whole sermon on the second week of COVID because I knew, we knew it was going to kind of come. I didn't know how long it would be. Gracious. And so I'm going to do a quick version of that again. So it's like a point within a point, or several points within a point. So I'm, this is for free. This is a biblical way to undergo severe stress, confusion, uncertainty, and tragedy. All right, four points in point number three. <laughs> number one, turn. Number two, complain. It's okay. Number three, don't stay there. Ask. Number four, trust. 
Turn, complain, ask, trust. Uh, an author on, on a book on lamenting I really like says, to cry is human, to lament is distinctly Christian. Okay, that's the difference. Everybody in the world cries, and that's a response to hurt and sorrow, and that's normal. Christians take it a step further, and they lament. So Psalm 13, we'll let the word kind of guide us in how we're going to go on this. We get Psalm 13 up there. I want to read. This is a similar uh, position that David, King David has found himself in, and this is how he laments. It's only six verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See how that moves? It goes, And so what we see here is this psalm is David. He, he turns to God. It's like Hezekiah. This is the reflex. He takes his eyes off the enemy armies and off all the things that are going wrong and the people that are complaining and those that, that aren't going to make it. He turns, he turns away from everything and he puts his eyes exclusively to the Lord. Then he complains. And that's not just a whining and a complaining. It's actually there's, there, there's substance to it. He just means he's being honest before the Lord, not only with his feelings, but with the reality of the situation and his enemies. The way that he sees it. This is verses 1 and 2. We see, oh Lord, how long will I have sorrow? He says, like all the day long. We would say something akin to, oh Lord, how long will I have sorrow? How long will my heart hurt? How long will this pandemic steal our lives? How long will people devour one another on Facebook? How long will the church look like the world? How long? And just how are you going to go with that? Right? You just go with that, you can springboard off of that, and the, the Bible is showing us how do we lament? How do we complain? We might even be wrong in what we're saying. We're just like, this is what is burdening me down. It's all I can see right now. I want to see you, but I got this. But he doesn't stay there. Next, he asks in verse 3 and 4. He says, light up my eyes. Basically, help me. Lest something worse happen to me, help me. I don't even know the right answer. I don't know the right question to ask. I just know you need to light up my eyes. Please intervene. You are God. I am not. Do what you do. I can't do any of that. I need something outside of myself, namely you, to move. And then in verses 5 and 6, he finishes with trusting. Trusting that God's love, and this is what makes it Christian. We don't just go down in the dumps and stay there. Is that while we feel like we're there, there is always hope. That's what the gospel brings. At the point of the crucifixion, there was only one person that knew that was going to turn out well. Only one. Everybody else is like, why did the king die? This is not how this was supposed to go. And we say, welcome to the gospel. There is trusting that God's love is enough and he is worthy of rejoicing in it. And it can still fill the psalmist's heart even though he is sinking, he can be singing. That this great mercy that he's swimming in and at the cross we are dealt bountifully with as well. 
do we see that? I want us to get to where we can see that, that we lament, but with hope. And so I would say, this goes so far as to say, this is a good memory chapter, memory verse for us. Everybody wants to cling to victory verses? That's great. We need a good lamentation to have on our hearts as we're walking, as we lay our heads on our pillow and think, this might be it. I may not recover from this. Because that's exactly where David was, and yet he did not give up. His sadness did not fall into despair. Jesus was sad. Jesus was not in despair. It's the hope that holds on to us for the gospel. The gospel, uh, lamenting is a vehicle for trusting God when things do not go our way because we're never promised an easy life. You were never promised that. You were promised hope in the midst of a life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not around it, not over it, through it. And the cross goes right through the valley of the shadow of death. And we follow Jesus because he said, follow me. Because it leads to life but it does not bypass difficulty. Problems don't suddenly melt away. We aren't always healed. We don't always lose the weight we want. We, we may lose our reputation. We don't have our families suddenly come back together all the time. We don't always hit the jackpot and get our dream home. That misses the point of the cross if that's where our hope really lies. And it betrays the notion that what we really want is something this world can offer. Our deepest need is Jesus. A relationship with God himself. We need that more than we need healing. That sounds harsh to say, Jamie. I know. I'm not saying we don't pray for him. We want it, and we do want that. But sometimes we get so preoccupied with the things that we just want realize that our wanter is broken and what we really need is what we would really want if we knew what we really wanted was what we really need. It, it is bigger than even our, our, our desires and affections can imagine because we have tasted so little. <laughs> we don't know what to want. We think we know it. We're like a two-year-old. I really want the Drano because it's pretty and blue. It will kill you. And God says, I'm showing you on the cross. I've outed you. You can't save yourself. You need help. Come to me. And when you come, follow. We need him more than healing, more than wealth, more than popularity, more than power, more than reputation, more than a good marriage, more than kids that do and act like we want them to. Nor four, waiting. Yes, it does get harder. <laughs> Hezekiah waits. And waiting is not glamorous. But it's not weak. And it is most certainly not passive. You don't just sit around passing time, disengaged, playing Xbox, waiting for God to move. To make that evident, all you have to do is ask a parent, a rebellious child that doesn't live at home anymore, who can't do anything but pray and wait. I assure you, it's not a passive thing. Some of the hardest things you can do is wait, biblically wait. Sometimes in our unwillingness to wait on God, we rush to solve a problem or to just fix something when the greater need is for God to do it, his will, his way, not his will, our way, but the Lord's will, the Lord's way. That's what Francis Schaeffer taught us. We, we don't want people to hurt and, and suffer discomfort, and so sometimes we, we circumvent what's going on, but that could be the very crucible of change and transformation that God is working through. 
Philippians 3.10 says this. This is Paul, that I may know him. That's what he wants more than anything. And he had it all. He had a pedigree. I want to know that I may know him, whatever it costs, the power of his resurrection. Yeah, everybody wants the power, comma, and may share in his sufferings. They go together, they're tethered together, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Maybe the reason we don't have so much power in our Christianity is because we are unwilling to walk through the suffering or to recognize it as valuable or we try to push it away or to take something for it or to charge it on a credit card or to start over again. And we're unwilling to follow Jesus at that moment. The path of transformation in Christianity is not the path of least resistance. Sometimes it takes waiting. The cross, you see, is not only the means of salvation, it's also the paradigm in which God works in our lives. Death, burial, resurrection happen over and over and over. The death of your dream, the death of what you thought your life was going to be, the death of what you thought your family was going to be, it's not. And it goes into the tomb, and then Jesus, as we put it before him, resurrects it to what it needs to be. And we leave it there with him, and we wait. Maybe there's something that needs to die in us, to be crucified. That's what sets Christianity apart. It's not only the way we're saved, it's the way we live. It's his life. God works most clearly to us at least, in our suffering and in our tears and in our powerless waiting. This is the deep, invisible work of God in your soul. It is not to be pushed aside. It is not to be excused. It is is to be waited upon. His hidden work in suffering is most clearly seen in Christ and in his crucifixion. And Jesus says, follow me. It seems like such folly. It seems ridiculous. It seems like weakness. And yet that is what sets Christianity apart. That is actually where the power is. The theology of the cross is where God takes the lowly and the weak and the foolish and works it in such a way as to bring glory to himself and transformation and new life in us. Like in 1 Peter last week, it is during our suffering and trials that we most clearly see him restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And we take no credit for it. In our humility, we realize we didn't even want to do it this way. This is not grandiose. And yet, it is the path to glory. And God joyfully lavishes his grace upon us. It's an upside-down approach to how we would fix what's really wrong in the world, right? That's not how I'd have done it. But it is how it's being done. We wait on God. And we display that in how we trust him. We aren't passive, I assure you. We're trusting. You will be hurt. You will be misunderstood. 
you will suffer. Jesus did. It's what you do with that that's important. Nobody asks to be born in the time that they're born. They don't ask to have the suffering that they're, that's foisted upon them. What will we do with where we are and who we are? That you have a say in. Don't lash out against your enemy's army that is around laying siege to your life forever. Surely you will for a little while. It's not fair. What did we do to you? I don't deserve this. Careful. Don't swing too far the other way and curl up in the fetal position and just give in and go, it's all lost. There's no hope. We might as well just wait to die. Those are two extreme responses, neither one biblical. What did Hezekiah do? He just turned to the Lord. He was honest with the Lord. He waited on the Lord. He sought godly counsel. We would say abide in Jesus. Surround yourself with people that love the Lord and ask them, what do they see? How do they experience you? Realize that suffering leads us to Jesus and is used to transform us into his image. And fight for joy in that. I'll close with an illustration, not quite so heavy. <laughs> um, that old van I was telling you about, we've had, we go from van to van, and we bomb like with 100,000 miles plus, and you see how, how, how far can we go, you know? It's kind of like when I was in college, just living on $33 for an HVAC bill. How low can I get it, you know? And so we have a new uh, warning signal every week, and Missy drives the van, my wife, and um. It was just one after the other, and, and, and we're like, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, just stringing along. So it's, it's on live support, but we lo- I love hiking, and so we're taking our kids hiking. It was a few weeks ago, and um, we, we're not supposed to really, you shouldn't probably take a van off-road, but I don't know. Who cares? So <laughs> we're going off-road. We're somewhere in Sipsy Wilderness, and we're going to go drive as far as we can and then walk as far as we can, right? Let's just, let's just get out there. Let's go for it. And we're coming back, and, you know, I absolutely have worn the children out. They don't like hiking as much as I do, but I'm leading, so I don't really care, right? So come on, stop laying down in the middle of the trail, and then uh, we'll get back, and we're in the van, and we're leaving, and we're driving out, and it's this, you know, gravel road, and there's just potholes everywhere, and all of a sudden, I hit one, and and I just, we hear this big old boom, and all the kids' eyes, I look in the back, the rear view mirror, and they're like, whoa, like, that was a bomb. What just went off? And I thought, well, that, that, that probably wasn't good. <laughs> and then there's this constant dragging sound of, <laughs> I'm like, did y'all hear that before? And they're like, no, I didn't. But, yeah, I think you're right. There's, some, there's something still with us. Did you hit something? Did you kill something? And it's still there. You know, we're, we're not sure, but it, we drug that thing. We dragged, drug, whatever. We dragged that thing about a mile and I got to a, where the paved road was, and I thought, okay, there's nobody here. I'm going to put it in park. I'm just going to look. So I get out and look underneath, and there's this, uh, you know, guys that know it, or, or women, guys, whatever, work on cars, you know what it is. It's like an oil pan covering on the bottom. Like, it's like a shield, I guess, an oil pan shield. Anyway, it expands the whole bottom of the, the, the van, and it got ripped off except for like one little piece, and it was just kind of dragging, and it's about this big. And so, you know, I put my foot on the van and pulled real, real hard. I kind of finished it off. And so, I'm like, okay, no big deal. I'm about function over form anyway. So just, but this looks kind of important. I'm not sure what's really going on here. I'll put it in the back just in case. So I put it in the back of the van and I thought, I'll fix that later. And for some reason, 
it just, you know, I put it in the garage, and I never got around to it for like a week or so. And then I started thinking, you know, that probably has an important function to keep, like, sparks from hitting the oil pan. There's probably gas. I don't know. My ignorance is, you know, so I just started obsessing over it. And I'm like, I can't fix it. I can't order one on Amazon. Where do you buy one of those? I didn't actually just pick up the phone and call a friend that knows for some reason. And so I was just left to stew and worry about something that is just absolutely ridiculous to worry about. But for some reason, it got me. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm, going, I'm having trouble sleeping at night. And I'm just, anyway, all that to say, we're like, well, you know, maybe we need to, to look at a new van. Or Missy's like, oh, let's go look at a new van. That thing's been gone. I'm like, no, I have not had a car payment in 10 years. We're not starting that, not starting now. You know, I'm very, very proud of not having a car payment which is a bad place to be because that means it needs to be taken down, the pride, not the payment. So anyway, she looks on there, and we're going to look at minivans again. Let's find some old minivan that doesn't have warning lights pop up every week. So we go look at that, and then they, while we were waiting, there was this uh, other vehicle that she, she was like, why, why, can I just drive in it? And I'm like, oh, sure, whatever. I'm just waiting for this crazy car that had just gotten turned in and still had a fresh wreck, right? <laughs> so I was waiting for them to clean it out. And so she sits in it, and it's uh, a, like a 2014, still got close to 100,000 miles on it or whatever. And it was like a pilot or whatever. And she's like, I, I like this. And I thought, well, that's over. We're, we're, not, <laughs> we're, not, we're not getting a, a van. Um, and so as here, so here, here's the point of, of this. We did get that, by the way, and I do have a payment, and I'm not happy about it. So that's another problem. So, but, but a bigger problem got solved. <laughs> here's the issue. I was obsessed with the oil pan, and the answer to being obsessed with the oil pan, God did not go, here's a new oil pan, you know, because this is what you knew, this is what needed to be fixed. Here, just get a new oil pan and, and screw that on there, and then, then your desires will be met. God says, no, I'll, I'm going to change the whole paradigm. I'm going to, you're not even asking the right questions. You need a new vehicle. That will fix the oil pan cover. And it, it hit me later, I thought. <laughs> I guess that did kind of take care of that problem, <laughs> didn't it? And so I still have an oil pan cover, and I, but I don't have the van. And so it's kind of like a monument, putting 12 stones for, for, for Joshua in the, in the river. You know, we did that. God's still taking care of us even when we're not thinking right about it. And he loves us more than we love him. You know, I just, just, it's, it's a monument just kind of sitting there. God is doing something deep in you. Maybe right now. And it may take a pandemic to get you unfocused on whatever it is you're focused on. And if it does, so be it. Praise the Lord. God may be solving bigger problems than you know that you have by replacing the whole thing. You may be being established right now. And you didn't ask that question. You didn't think that was a problem because you thought you were okay. And now you're realizing, I'm not. I don't really have a heart for the Lord. I don't really miss gathering with the saints. I don't really miss being in, in a missional community. I don't really miss being a part of something going a little bit deeper. I don't really miss the word. I don't miss prayer. I think I'm numb. I think I don't care. I think I might be worried. And I would say, praise God. Let's start there. Maybe he's doing a deeper work in your heart, a transformative work to establish you. So let's pray. 
I ran over a little bit. I'm not going to apologize a lot, but I will a little bit. All right, worship team can come on up. Here's what we're going to do for prayer. We're going to put Psalm 13 up here. And then if I will remind you of the four things. I'm going to give you two minutes to just sit where you are and practice a lament. You may have never done this before in your life. I'm not going to score you on it. Nobody's going to keep, it's, it's okay. All right. Number one, you're going to turn. Number two, complain. Number three, ask. And number four, find a way to express that you will trust God no matter what. All right. Let's do that for a couple minutes. I'll close this in prayer and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father, we turn our eyes to you. We take our eyes off of ourselves, off of this world, off of this virus, off of the school situations, off of our family situations, off the division that we see, off social media. We take it all off of that. And we turn and we say, where does our help come from? We look to the hills. We look to you. We look only to you right now. We intentionally say, how long, O Lord? How long will this last? How long will we be at odds? How long will we feel uncomfortable? How long will we be distanced like this? How long will we be in the position that we are in? How long will we be divided? How long will we be at each other's throats? How long will the church look like the world? Would you save us? So, Father, we ask simply that you would move among your people. We know that it left to our own devices. We will not make it. We will not change our own hearts. We cannot do that. Many of us do not want to do that. Many of us do not see that there is a need for that. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move, to come, and to blow fresh wind, to move among us. God, that we would have a spirit of humility, not one of pride that can't hear, even when the right words are spoken, but one that receives and wants to know, how can we be more like Jesus? Where are we not doing that? How how can I follow Jesus more closely? We ask that you move among your people. We ask that we love one another so that they, people would know that you're, we're your disciples. Not that they would be confused. We'd not be smart, outsmarting people. We would exhibit the character of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit that is supernaturally within us. And that we would display his character. So we ask you to move. We trust that you are able, you who hold the world in your palm, who created the maker of both heaven and earth. We have no doubt. So would you come and help us? 
sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, for the transformation of our hearts, and for the worship that you are due. It is your name that we pray. Amen. Take the Lord's